hello and welcome to another episode of People Not War, a podcast brought to you by Campaign Against Arms Trade. My name is Sienna and I'll be your host. Join me as I catch up with campaigners, activists and community organisers, just all round inspirational people who are working to end the international arms trade and other intersecting issues. Throughout the series, we'll be drawing links between the arms trade and issues as broad as border controls and policing, colonialism, the crisis in Yemen, militarization of education, climate justice, to name just a few, with the hopes of showing that all these struggles are interconnected. And today I'm joined by the wonderful Melina Villeneuve. So welcome, Melina. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm My so excited. Absolute pleasure. Like it's been a long time coming. I have many times been on the other side of this where I've been yes. your guest. Yeah. <laughs> and now I get to ask you the questions. So. The tables have turned. Tables have turned. Um, so we'll get Melina to, to introduce herself um in, in more depth in a moment, but we'll just give you her biog, and it's a very impressive biog, I have to say. So Melina here is a Manchester-based anti-militarism and anti-war activist, specifically um, the co-founder and research director of Dedication. Um, she's a board member of Women of Colour Advancing Peace and Security, WC, WCAPS, um, uh, the UK chapter, and she's also the co-host of one of my favourite podcasts, Got Melanin. So as I said, welcome Melina. I think it's very important for the, obvi- for the audience to just know that Melina here is one of my favorite people. She's refreshingly honest in all that she does, incredibly funny as a person, that has to be noted as well. And she's deeply passionate about the work she does on demilitarizing education, making clear connections between climate breakdown, ensuring the voices of black women and women of color are indeed in the conversation of creating a more just and peaceful world. And so we will dive into to all that she does um, in a moment. But Melina, first and foremost, I just wanna start with asking you, how are you doing at this time? Because no doubt it's been up and down. Well, first of all, you've completely inflated my ego now, which I its a—I I just feel bad for the people who have to deal with me on a daily basis now because I, I have a what? Impressive resume? What? Um, no, I thank you so much for this opener and for just, yeah, this amazing warm welcome. Um, I think in terms of how I'm doing today, (laughs) it's very up and down. Um, We've spoken about this before when we've had John Gottmelin in a few times um, where we've kind of like, we always start as well with the same question of just how are you doing? Um, You know, as, as a space for black women to come and just like vent what they have to vent out or just get their uh, frustrations out. I am currently very frustrated. Um, I'm annoyed that this British conservative government has decided to spend an extra 16 billion pounds on defense when you literally had like 700 people that died from COVID last year, last week. Um, I'm hopeful still because obviously, you know, a a podcast like yours currently right now with, with Kat, um, is something that we definitely need uh, to, to happen, to have these conversations and to actually open this door and really face like the ugly truth and the ugly reality of, of the system that we live in. Um, and I, I kind of, I hate obviously Miss Rona, um, with a passion. I think we made a joke once that she's, cause I'm a Sagittarius and we made a joke that she's definitely a Sagittarius. Cause like no one took her seriously at first <laughs> and then came back with a vengeance. Um, so on the one hand, I obviously hate everything that's happening this year, but on the other hand, it's almost like a blessing to be able to have that mirror like really held up to to us as a society and to just kind of examine like, wow, what are we doing? Like there's been a lot of self-reflection and introspection on my part, like the last few months, which results in an up and down mood like every week, really. No, yeah. absolutely. It's been, it's, it's been a reckoning to say the least. And so mm-hmm. this this uh, uh, metaphor of holding a mirror, I think is very much powerful for everything that's happened this year, really. So thank you for that honest answer about how you're doing. And I think, you know me, I like to try and frame it as kind of, how are we doing today? How are we doing now? How are we doing recently? Yeah. Just because it's actually a very big question to think about how you're doing, especially when you already know that it must be the full spectrum of emotions that you felt in the few, yeah. the week alone, let alone this whole year, so. Yeah. 
That's right. Okay. So, so now we know kind of where you are on a spectrum of, of feelings and emotions, Mel. Um, let's find out a bit more about who you are and what you do. So how about you tell us just as a starting point, kind of how your um, life and work as a campaigner began, because I know you wear many hats like me. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so basically, I guess, technically speaking, like I've been campaigning my entire life um, because I've got parents who work for UNICEF and therefore my literal childhood was like sometimes going with them to schools that like, you know, there was like a UNICEF kind of project or something happening. So I think from a very early, early age, um, I was genuinely just like exposed to the fact that like there are injustices um, in this world that particularly play out in the global south. But I guess the real, real beginning is um, after I finished my master's. So I, I moved to Manchester in summer of 2017 to do a master's in security and international law and um, finished that. And I kind of was like looking around for options for jobs and there wasn't really anything that made sense with my moral code as well as like where I could, you know, put my skills to use and make money. <laughs> um, and so I kind of was in this lull and just not really sure of like what I wanted to do. Um, Cause I don't know, you know me, like I'm not, I'm a serious person, but I'm also like a massive clown. So like, it's, I'm, I'm just there. Like I, I need to be able to, this is how I express myself. Um, and I met Ginsella, wonderful, beautiful Ginsella, um, in October of 2018. And we basically, we met at a friend's birthday and I went on like a 15 minute long tirade about how um, the West has, you know, capital W West has failed Congo, um, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And how since like, yeah, from from its colonialism until now, um, that it's, it's not working um, and that, you know, it's, yeah not beneficial. And, um, Ginsella was basically just like, let's do it. <laughs> let's join forces and let's work together. And so she had already started with the foundations of, um, education or demilitarized education limited because we're a company. Um, and <laughs> basically she was, you know, starting something like this by yourself is impossible. So it, it really was a partnership that came at like the right time. And it was also, like, my introduction into the global arms trade, into, like, the way in which our defense um, sectors work in the West, capital W West, um, you know, the the links that exist between, like, this very private, secretive industry and then, like, our governments um, and, you know, through Ginsella, how it all also uh, exists in our university systems and within our university structures. Um Something that actually I was on a I was hosting a, yesterday an event with um, London students for Yemen and um, we had Andrew Feinstein on there and he basically kind of he basically said that like it's it's almost like there's a mini in, uh, military industrial complex within universities. Um, and so that's basically kind of what we were all myself and Gensella were like definitely woken up to. Um, and I think since then it's been a lot a lot of learning and a lot of humbling situations where like I had no idea like you just you just don't know these things and and once once it's as clear as day in front of you then it's like wow how have we been duped for so long that you know the th this way of cons consistently and, and continuously investing in in something that is inherently like not to be used for good how is that actually making us any safer, any more humane, any, you know, any better, like, realistically? It's just giving us a, a, an advantage, but what kind of advantage is that, you know? Um, so I think it's been, it's been quite a journey. And then this summer with BLM, like, that was a whole other way in which my identity was now a part of, like, what I was working on or for and that took a I, I found out what emotional labor means <laughs> like I it was yeah it's been so it's you know it's been basically two years that um we've uh, set up and we've been running to education and I think I've grown up a lot in the last two years but I also feel like I don't know I also feel like such a child because it's like all of these big powers and these big things happening that like I don't have any direct influence on 
but that I do technically have influence on and that is very much affecting my life. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been quite a humbling journey, I guess. Mm, that's really powerful. And I think you've already started to give us basically the outline as to the history and how, you know, actually in a social, just a socializing context, you know, you can meet someone at the right time and be able to like build something mm-hmm. like what you're building right now. Um, and I think for me, I do think your organization is quite a unique organization. The way you folks express yourself, use social media, we'll come on, all, you will come on to all of that a bit later. But um, maybe from your perspective, though, what is so unique about education and the work that you're trying to do with Jin and kind of the peace force as you, you like to yeah. call us all? I know actually yes. this, so a 2017 DSEI week of action was, was, was key in sparking the idea for Jin yes. to start this work. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she, um, Jin did like fashion marketing at, at university and she's brilliant. Like I definitely have never, yeah, no, I mean, and yeah, she's, she just like, she definitely understands the, I've learned a lot in terms of like running a business, like through her. Um, <clears throat> and I'm forever grateful for that. Um, and basically, she went to the DSCI protests in 2017, also had no idea what it was, what was happening, and then found out and was just, like, disgusted. Um, and I think, basically, what does make us unique is that we're, we're very much, like, a proactive organization in terms of um, our visions and, like, in terms of what we, what we see our impact being. But it comes from a very reactive place. So, like the creation of the education came from her reactionary, like, you know, feeling towards seeing DSEI happen and and the protest happen and how protesters were handled by uh, metropolitan police and stuff. Um, And I think same with me, like when I found out about everything, like it was very reactionary as well, because I mean, you just don't expect that. So I think we, I think we are, our kind of unique point is, is that we're, I don't know how to say it, but it's like we've got the energy of someone that's like really annoyed, <laughs> but we've also caught the calm and the serenity of someone that like has a plan. And I don't think that you see that necessarily. This is in no way, shape or form any shade towards any other organizations whatsoever. Um, you know, I think we're all doing a brilliant job the, in, in the best way that we can operate and, and move and stuff. But I do think that we're kind of the only ones that are like our age and pushing for this kind of campaign and especially, you know, a campaign that does focus not solely, but whose main benefactor would be a university system. Like it's like a mini government. You know what I mean? It's it's a lot to to try. I'm still trying to fully understand like the structures and how everything works and who's the best person to talk to. And so, you know, so it's it's quite um I think what sets us apart is that, yeah, we're doing this behemoth of, of, of work <laughs> in, in a setting that, like, is not necessarily, like, that receptive to us. <clears throat> but at the same time, because we speak the language of the youngins and the, and the, the young folks and that, um, that, you know, we, we also get our point across and it's not, like, patronizing in any way. I have often found myself a bit frustrated at times because we'll be in a meeting or, you know, whether it's like with other organizations or whether it's like with people from the University of Manchester and they'll kind of look at us and be like, ah, I too was once 20 and full of energy. And it's like, yeah, but realistically, I'm like way over 20. And like, I also am not you. So if you had this energy and you like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, all right, well, that's good for you. Naturalizing you basically try or try to level with you in like a way that let's face it is like rather condescending usually. And I think, you know, the, again, a running theme in our conversations is this, is the power of youth is the, in whatever context really, but like from Black Lives Matter to the NSARS movement to, you know, the work that you're doing at education, all these kinds of different things. We keep seeing that it is young people. And actually in every generation, it is young people that, that Mm. um, are often, you know, the, the drivers of change. I think it's as it's, it's simple as that and fair to say. And we've seen that yes again this summer with young people being the ones that are organizing the protests that are calling truth to power and being like, well, my education is has been messed up uh, to say the least Thanks. by this government and by what's happening with COVID and all that kind of stuff. And so, well, you know, what is there to lose? And we've seen a lot of things happen in Manchester on the COVID front, right? You know, students were caged up literally. Like, Thanks. yeah. What the hell was that about? So, you know, so yeah, I think all of these things and I think the you speaking the language and it's not cringe (laughs) (laughs) is very unique and it's an example of young people leading the movement as they should be um Mm. I guess 
it would be quite useful to to actually talk a bit more about the specific um, nature of of um, the arms trades and public institutions such as universities. You've started to talk yeah. about talk about it a little bit, but I'm always trying to have in these conversations a bit of a 101, shall we say, where it comes to if there's mm. anyone new to this conversation um, and it would otherwise go over their heads. Otherwise, if we can just have some very like simple breakdowns of some key points that people should be aware of when it comes to so in this case education universities and the arms trade yeah. one of the key links that we should be aware of so um i think basically what shocked me the most um when really started this work is <clears throat> the fact that you have um research that's sponsored at universities by uh, arms companies um i will take an example that is very real and for which i have all the receipts um and basically the university of manchester um, has had a helping hand in, like, the research and development for BAE's Magma Drone. Um, I sent a Freedom of Information Act request asking, like, what is the nature of the partnership? Clearly, I used the wrong word because what I got back was there is no such partnership. So I was like, okay. <laughs> and then <laughs> it's like, well, that's really awkward. Yeah, <laughs> legit. The, it's really awkward because... If you go on BAE Systems website and you type in Magma Drone on their search bar, you will find literally an article that basically says, like, we could not have done this without the help of the wonderful University of Manchester. And this is, for me, this is like the nature of these links. You will never hear the public institution obviously say that, like, they there are such links that exist, especially with companies like BAE Systems. Um you know, that are known for, like, literally, like, the weapons that are exported to Saudi Arabia to be used in Yemen are coming from that company. Um, the issue is that, you know, a lot of a lot of companies that manufacture weapons or that have any sort of role in, like, the global arms trade can also be dual use, meaning that they have, like, civilian products, basically, civilian use products. So that muddies the waters completely and Can you entirely. give us examples of that i'm literally thinking of yeah. phones and tvs and like the way that yeah, yeah, yeah. are involved in all sorts of everyday so, things yeah so we're gonna we have to thank the palestine solidarity campaign for the stat that i'm about to drop but essentially um they conducted like a ton of research using foi requests and everything so freedom of information act requests and they found out that the University of Manchester has five million three hundred sixty-six thousand um, pounds of complicit investments. So, like by complicit investments, they mean like investments that further Israeli apartheid. Um, and when you look at like these investments, like what you know, who's the company? It's Microsoft and it's Samsung. But Microsoft and Samsung both have a helping hand in making sure that like the Israeli apartheid continues to exist the way that it is. Um, and so, you know, it's it's kind of, this is what I mean by like muddies the water, is that if we go to the university and say, you need to cut these breaks, they're going to be like, well, what about all of the electrical engineering students that are working on like new communication stuff? What about blah, blah, blah? What about this? And, um, you know, this is, this is further kind of muddied, I guess. I, I can't help but think of like muddy water when I think of this, but yeah, it's it's further muddied by the fact that there's also a thing such as academic freedom <laughs> and that, you know, you technically have, you're at a higher learning institute. Like, why should you not explore the things that you want to learn about or, or you know, learn on? Um, so that that kind of like, the, the nature of these relationships between, like, these public institutions and these companies, it's one that, like, it benefits both, but one has to stay super, super quiet <laughs> and has to just kind of, you know, the public institutions have to stay pretty quiet about it and, you know, make sure that, like, at least on the outside, it does really seem as if, well, you know, there's only so much that, like, we can do in stopping these private companies from, like, manufacturing these kinds of weapons. We're only here thinking about our students realistically though if you're thinking about your students you're not taking sponsorship from companies that are making them complicit in like manufacturing weapons or even just in manufacturing products that further you know militarized policing systems that further border control that further the inequality that we currently face um at an alarming rate 
you know, it's it's growing at an alarming rate. And so you would think... grounds, basically. For, yeah. They're, they're breeding grounds, grooming, I think it's a better word, rather. Grooming grounds for kind of like the next generation of people who will work in the arms industry in some way, shape, or form. And it, although we're, it, we're obviously talking about kind of universities, for example, but what you're talking about just makes me think a little bit about the ways that BAE has... like. And, and other arms companies, but we're just using Bay as an example because it's very, very, very much a leader in, in all of these things. Um, but yeah. the way they've like, got their influence in schools, for example, just before the pandemic had hit, we were like looking into kind of we were having conversations around the fact that you know BAE were very much trying to present themselves um and do the thing of like particularly targeting girls to enter STEM and girls of color as well. So black and brown girls, you know, working class girls, just doing the whole kind of like representation politics of yeah. like, yeah, we need, you know, more girls in STEM or whatever. But like, so that it's in direct opposition with the fact that actually it's irrelevant whether or not you're getting girls into STEM. What is the STEM that you're talking about? You're actually talking about the arms yeah. industry here. But yeah, the way mm -hmm. that they're able to reach young people from an alarmingly young age and, mm -hmm. and you know that, that that just nods to like a wider culture about kind of how this industry is seen um, and the disconnect. People do not still make the connections between you know designing things, creating things, and actually the fact that they're yeah. used and they are they kill people. You know they're, yeah. they're very able to like disconnect, and so th that includes universities and students. They don't believe or don't yeah. see us being part of the chain. And I I really you know. This is not even to say that like every kid who's studying um, electrical engineering is doing this or or every kid that's doing aer aerospace engineering is like, you know, making drones. It's got nothing to it's it's not, you know, there are many other the spaces point. to use those skills. Exactly. So why why do these skills have to only go towards like military innovation? Like this rhetoric is so old. It's insane. Even when um, the prime minister announced that they were going to beef up the defense budget by like 16 billion pounds, over 16 billion pounds, sorry. Um, it kept talking about, yeah, the realm, the realm, protecting the realm. Is this 18th century? Like, am I in Lord of the Rings? Like, what is this? You know, it's like, it's like this old idea of like, oh, yeah, this very patriarchal old idea of Imperialist, like... Imperialist, colonialist. Yeah. So obviously when you're going to union and now you're like being told like, oh my gosh, yeah, you're working on this like project that th there's Ministry of Defense funding in there. It's like, oh, whew, okay, well, I'm in the big, big league now, you know, there's that sense of like, wow, I'm working on some really cool stuff. And it's stuff we talk about cat as well. Like, there's a cultural shift. There has to be the, the the point is that we still live in a country that actually war is quite prestigious and being involved in it yeah. is quite prestigious. And it's very um, difficult to criticize it without being seen as like anti-British and anti this and anti that. Um, and yeah. it's a whole other like wider conversation. But yeah, as you say, um, all of this is just part of part. Of course, you know when you're at school or at university, and it's a you know it's a good job to to go into these spaces. And of course, you're going to be like, wow, the you know MOD want to support me why not kind of thing yeah, so that's yeah. why it's important to be able to have these counter narratives at least to be like well actually here's the reality of what this work might entail or what it contributes yeah. to in the ecosystem yeah yeah we could talk about that for, for, for forever basically literally um, but i think that's a useful kind of starting point opening point um for people to to start to get their hand heads around the issue a little bit even though it's again all yeah. of these things we're talking about are very complex and i keep saying that they are because they are but there are ways that there's lots of resources out there including of course cat in demilitarized education and PSE to kind of get exactly. you started. Moving um, away from demilitarized education just a little bit, with your other hat on, um, your Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security, otherwise known as WCAPS hat on, um, can you talk a bit about Mel, um, Mel about how the arms trade, war, and issues of security uniquely affect women of color and women of and in the global south why does this matter yeah. and i wanted just to note that i read your brilliant interview with limbo radio recently and i really like what oh you my... said girl i did my research uh, yeah. <laughs> and i really like what you said here where you said um i don't want to be a token the one who has given the black voice or the youth voice to something i'd rather just give my own voice and i was like this is so powerful because often when you are the only one you fall mm. into that by default so, so let's just talk about this a little bit and let's unpack that a little bit um the kind of unique yeah. unique ways that this um industry um the arms trade affects <clears throat> women of color black women brown people in the global south and in the diasporas but also this wider thing about kind of being a a, a woman of color a black woman a black identifying yeah. woman yourself and doing this so hmm. i guess also 
and this isn't even to like clarify anything, but I, I don't actually call myself necessarily like black when I'm kind of introducing myself. I always say I'm mixed and that's not to say like, no, I'm white as well. Like, no, it's literally just because I don't know the actual struggle of like a black yeah, woman. You have a mixed experience. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it is, you know, it always, for me, that's always just to kind of reaffirm the fact that, like, I don't speak for every black woman that's ever walked on this earth. Um, and also I'm wearing a shirt which says defend black womanhood um, that I, uh, yes, that I got with my with my co-host Mari from Got Melanin. Um, no, but yeah, so, you know, in terms of, like, the global arms trade exists in order to fuel wars. You know, you don't have a global arms trade to just kind of stockpile on the side. Um, there's no money in that. So, yeah. So, you know, already I'm not going to go into like the devastating effects of war because we know what that's like. So, you know, when you are now a woman of color growing up, you know, in the global south, you don't have access to education anymore the way that like you're supposed to. It's like, you know, you could be in a country also that doesn't actually favor or prioritize educating girls and women. So that's already an issue. Um, you, you know, your, your way of life is entirely interrupted to the point where it's a question of like survival. And it's, I, you know, the only, the, basically the only thing that I can think of when you, when you've asked this question is, um, the fact that like in Eastern Congo, where my mom's from, um, rape is still very much the tool of war. Um, it is the way that you break down women. It is the way that you break down villages. It is the way that you divide villages. It's, it's the way that you ostracize a whole demographic of, of a population. Um, and this isn't some... This this isn't like rape committed rapes committed by like uh what's the word you know militaries this is done by like militias um, because Eastern Congo is still very much a place of conflict um, mostly due to the fact that there's a lot of mines and a lot of minerals in the soil everything that we are using on our phones laptops I I yeah um, and you know to this day. The Congolese woman in the East is still regarded as basically just kind of like territory to take over and advance on in order to get what you want. Um, there is a brilliant doctor, uh, Denis Mukwege, that is basically a gynecologist who he his rise to fame has been that like he has fixed women, fixed in the sense that like some women would come there with, um, I mean it's horrible, but like firearms having been shot while inside of them um you know massive massive uh like um what's the word like multiple rapists at the same time um you know you have some women that were genuinely broken and how do you expect any sort of population to survive or you know any anyone to survive if like the mother figures are broken and completely like distraught and don't feel human, you know, are being, are being, are, are, are being told by like their neighbors, you know, the, the kids like, don't go play with the kid over there because the mom stinks, you know, when it's, it's, it's nothing that they're responsible for. And so for me, it's what, you know, in terms of how the global arms trade affects women of color across the globe in the diaspora and everywhere, it's just the fact that like, we're being, hunted down because we're the pillars of our communities we give birth to our communities we educate our communities we're there for our communities we sustain our communities how else do you get how else do you beat someone's morale down than by beating down their mom and and i i think genuinely that it's like we're the perfect target in in regards to that um and you know that's that's kind of yeah, that's how I see it. Is is that we're 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 the we're the chess piece on the on the chessboard to bring down, in order to to kind of have a huge advantage on the playing field. Um, I forgot what was the rest of your question. No, no, that's the heart of it. And I think so. And yeah, yeah, I think that framing is really powerful. Just to think about 
bottom line is how do, it's, it's strategic, isn't it? Doing these things yeah. to women in particular, especially in kind of global South communities, being pillars of community, pillars of, of yeah, of nurturement, you know, at least kind of like stereotypically and stuff. So I think that's very thought provoking. And I think the, yeah, the, the next part was just weaving back a bit about what you said and kind of the caveat that you gave us actually about kind of your experience as someone who is um, mixed, mm. you know, black and obviously, um, white as well um on your, on your dad's side as I know and I think because part of that same interview that I I read and like really enjoyed you you talked about the mm. fact that you know you you'd rather have your own voice rather than just be like the token voice but there are moments right. I, but what I didn't read also was just that there are moments there where you're like that is going to happen not necessarily out of bad intention how do you kind of use that all the yeah. same for the better being present and, and having a space for your voice how do you use that strategically and how do you use that to make sure that the voices that aren't in the room are represented. This is something I spoke to Amina about as well, actually. Mm. She being Yemeni herself, but she's Yemeni in the diaspora. And so she's very conscious about how she uses her voice when she's not living at home. And so how does she make sure she doesn't stand as like the Yemeni voice, basically? And I think we, yeah. we often have that conundrum. So just any thoughts about how yeah. you navigate that, though? The moments where it's very clear that you are being tokenized in the conversation, but how do you strategize to make sure that, well, if I'm going to be the only voice, you're going to yeah. make sure that it's a loud voice. <laughs> Well, first, I'm loud. Um, second, <laughs> um, no, I think it's a great question. Damn, you got me kind of stumped. Um, <laughs> I think, I well, I always start off with saying, like, these are my opinions or, like, these are my experiences. This is not, you know, I, it's always kind of, like, starting with the precursor of, like, I do not speak for everyone that looks like me um, because although it might seem kind of, like, redundant to do that, it, it does, you know, people do remember like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like this is her experiences. Um, and then I think it's just a question of, I, I think in those situations, I always try to make it clear that like a particular issue that I'm talking about. So for instance, like, I don't know, girls education, um, it's not something that is solely attributable to like Eastern Congo, you know, it's something that goes beyond, far and beyond, and frankly exists even, like, in Europe. Um, and, you know, it's a question of, like, making sure that while I'm here talking on, like, my perspective, um, these issues that you're asking me to comment about exist worldwide, and thus you're never going to get, like, a clear picture unless you definitely kind of... Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing is that, like, you know, you don't... It is what it is, like, even especially in Manchester, I I love this city, um, but I do move in, like, mostly-ish, well, I can't remember what spaces I really move in now because of COVID, but before, they were definitely, like, mostly white, and obviously everyone that I work with is insanely passionate, so there was never any situations of, like, anyone being patronizing or condescending or anything like that, but it is just one of those that, like, I kind of did start to realize and just think, like, okay, I really need to be a lot more thorough in how I speak on certain issues to make sure that, like, I don't inadvertently become, like, the lady justice of, like, this one issue, you know? No, definitely. And I think that's always a tricky burden to bear um, in whatever kind of form that your representation, representation takes when you know that you're representing an identity that is more marginalised, for example, even if that is yeah. beyond race, it could be anything to gender, sexuality... Um, ability disability all of that it can be it can be tricky to have that burden of almost being like hyper aware of your positionality and being like I'm gonna have to be the voice often when yeah. sometimes you don't even want to be but again that's yeah. a that, that's a conversation that we could have all day um I want you start to nod on something though that I want us to talk about which is this this notion of inter internationalism so yeah we'll talk a bit more about that but I was obviously super excited to see that you've been doing work with my pals at World Beyond War based in Canada and and internationally and um, tell us a little bit about those global conversations you've been having recently especially with other young people what have you kind of learned um what are the similarities in kind of the work you're doing and actually differences as well um particularly in the anti-war struggle you know you yourself yeah. talk about being a third culture kid that means someone who's from pretty much everywhere or at least someone who has lived all over the world in your case France the US Cameroon Mali Switzerland and now the UK and maybe I'm even missing out some places <laughs> but no these experience must have some kind of influence on how you work and how you see the world so let's just talk about all of that yeah um I mean I think I'm definitely a people person from traveling all the time so that helps um and you know I think that yeah the notion of I think basically 
there's more and more third culture kids that are coming up um, because of just how, like, every... Yeah, there's not one person that I, I know that's, you know, really, like, through and through French or, like, through and through British. Like, everyone's got some sort of mix somewhere. Um, so I, I think, you know, that will kind of become soon, hopefully, a more adopted label that people like to go with to really show that, like, we're in a globalized world. Um, but no, I found working with... Um, World Beyond War to be really interesting. Um, so they did, basically, we did, like, a video podcast and then just, like, a podcast podcast. And um, the for both times, I was part of, like, a five-person panel that was representing the five continents. So someone from Latin America, North America, Africa, Europe, and Asia. And it was really eye-opening to, first of all, converse with, like, all of these wonderful young women who, like, I, I've, you know, we're on a Zoom like this, and it's, like, just women of color, and I was like, yes! Uh! <laughs> it's like, this is great! And essentially, the struggles are the same everywhere. They just adopt different names, and they adopt different looks, but it's, the root of it is still the same, the same situation. So, um, Alejandra, who was, uh, I believe, in Colombia, she was basically talking about, like, you know, the corruption that exists within, like, political systems and just that it's hard for them to actually be able to get anything through because of said corruption. Um, Christine, who was in Kenya, was saying as well that, like, because corruption is so embedded in every step of, like, bureaucracy that it's virtually impossible to get rid of it and that also there was just, like, this free flow of, like... Um, handguns in Kenya that made it that like kids were just like young people are just resorting to violence as opposed to like doing anything else um and you know I could go on like this but basically by the time I spoke I was like yo we are literally all in we're all in the same boat and it, it's the idea that like we're all different as doesn't make sense to me anymore like it, it really just reinforced the fact that um, if we were to generally all bind together and stand up, like there would be no place for this elite that seems to run the world. There would be no place for them to go because we're we we those the five of us represented like millions of people who think the same way. And, and there's so, like a joint. It's, I think the understanding of that kind of like for want of a better term, joint oppressor, right? I think you know it's mm. important to always note our different contexts, and this is something I talk about a lot, note our different contexts, note our different experiences of the same thing, whether that's racism, <laughs> colonialism, um, but notes that, that capitalism is capitalism, right? Yeah. And, and violence is violence. And if yeah. these are the things that, um, and actually there should be joyful things that, that we share as well. Um, but if we're talking yeah. in the context of kind of like the arms trade and like kind of similar um, global issues, you know, there, there are many things in like um, Asham, who was another guest of our um, podcast might say as well, neoliberalism, another thing yeah. that would be a common thing that kind of underpins a lot of these struggles. Um, it's noting yeah. that, yeah, as you say, things take a different shape, but there are a few things that underpin them. And so the, the struggle is similar in the end because there is actually, there are a number of kind of common uh, things that are oppressing us yeah yeah exactly and it was it it especially because so Laiba who was calling us from India is 19 I believe and then um Sayako who was calling us from the US but I cannot remember exactly which part I think West Coast I I believe she was I think like 17 or 18 it really gave me so much hope to see them and to think like you know what I actually don't think that we're necessarily that doomed and obviously there's not, you know, not every 17-year-old kid on the planet is doing this right now. Like that's that's not my point. Like even in the we spoke about this on Got Melon in the other day, but after the elections in the US, there's the youngest ever congressman or senator, I think, was like 25, but basically he's like a clan's member in the making. Like everything that he says, his entire policy line, like everything is just very like evangelical racist sexist like misogynistic and so you're there like wow okay so he just went up and pop and he's 25 so he's got like a 70 year career looking ahead and then but then you have like, the people on the other side that like i was on the call with and so it's it just more of a 50 like, year career if he's 20, uh, 25 but yeah still too long Far too i don't long. know it's, i feel like mitch mcconnell low-key is like 100 but he just looks like yeah but no, I exactly like a long career. And then and so it, it is just kind of trying to weigh out like, OK, how many 
you know, we need to make sure that we can tip the balance so that by the time that like we're the ones that are the proper leaders and all of that, that we can really kind of like condemn this kind of behavior, condemn this way of thinking and like push for for reform and for change. You know, like I, I never I still to this day cannot understand how people don't see that we need to just start from scratch. I know that sounds insane, but no, I, it, I'm, it, I'm with you. We need to start from scratch. With we literally need to start from scratch because the system is proper broken. Like there's no amount of well, rather it's that you working the way it's supposed to, you could argue as well. And so, it, you know, when we think about systems of like policing, for example, never actually built to protect black and brown people. The military yeah, is never built to protect yeah. anybody from the global South. So I think, again, when we're thinking about language, a point that's come up loads is the idea that actually, I wonder if when we talk about broken systems, inverted commas, we actually are... Mm -hmm allowing we're like helping responsibility to be evaded and actually we think mm. about the fact that now nah, these systems are working as they should because they're designed in this way i think yeah. that gives you if you i think it, it switches the narrative in quite an, a powerful way yeah no i mean you're entirely right like <laughs> they they definitely work clearly um yeah it's just whenever I think of like people, well, not even people, but like after over the summer with BLM in the U.S., like the number of streets that all of a sudden had black. I'm like, I, how do you think that that is gonna be going to help anything whatsoever? It's literally like you're putting a band aid on like a massive crack in the wall that's about to like bring the whole house down. And so in that case, I'm like, just bring the house down then. Like, I love that. Let's just build it back up. Yeah. Well, it's like here yeah. giving claps to the NHS and badges. They want a pay rise, and that's not happening potentially. So <laughs> we want PPE. You know, these, these are the things. It would be far too much to actually do those things it's, that are important. Yeah. Um, definitely. But so sticking with kind of the power of young people again, this is like a running theme in our conversations. Um, I think you know. Let's talk about why it is important that a younger generation of, of campaigners are activated and remain activated to take part. And I think you know a lot of people have been activated by kind of the Black Lives Matter campaign, um, the movement rather actually, and everything that took place this mm -hmm. summer especially. But I think it's fair to say that with a movement like the kind of peace movement, um, it is very white, it's very middle class, and actually it's full of a lot of older people. Um, and I actually mm. think that can be very off-putting for a newer generation, if I'm being honest. Um, it can it feel like it's not really, how is this like kind of relevant to like what, what I'm about? And actually I'm really concerned with like, with black lives, I'm really concerned with like, you know, um, social mm. struggle, whatever, whatever you're like, or climate justice, these are my things, I'm gonna stick to that. And although I think it's very important to actually just pick what your battle is and like run with it, um, I'm also very strong on the fact that, but nothing is, should be done in silo. And we don't live single issue lives as Audrey Lord always reminded us, right? And so all these yeah. struggles are connected. It can feel overwhelming to know that they're connected, but they are. So why is it important though that young people do feel empowered to engage with with actually peace campaigning and campaigning against something like the global arms trades um, so that we have that shift, you know, um, in protest yeah. culture, especially this I, this space of protest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think even just as an act, it's, it's, it's been a learning experience, you know? I, I definitely, feel like on my on my personal end that I'm a lot more cultured <laughs> and just a lot more aware of how the world works and a lot more like not skeptical but I definitely look into you know whenever there's like oh parliament is proposing meh, 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 meh. it's like oh okay let me there's a buzzword in here that like might apply to something that I'm not really for so let me look into it a bit more and I think that you know having younger people and younger generations be involved in peace campaigning one it doesn't have to be in the streets like you don't need to be at a protest with a banner like please you know if that's your method of action go for it but like i know personally i'm an immigrant <laughs> i'm not trying to get arrested like that's just not how that's gonna work um and you know so you don't have to be to be this person that's like on the streets and like that's that's why ultimately you know the education that's kind of like what it's become it's become that space for young people to come and get involved and to be aware of different peace campaigns or just you know different social campaigns um that are ongoing and you know be able to like lend their voice in any way that they can or want to or feel comfortable to um you know we have to realize that um we 
although a massive show of people in the street is a huge like it, it's it's insane to see um we also have to realize that like we have new avenues of doing this and that we have to take on like more inclusive avenues rather than stay you know in the in the rhetoric of like no i'm gonna hit the streets and like i'm gonna show them what i really mean um just because it doesn't fit everyone um and you know even i think literally just in general it it's so important for us to know how our governing systems and bodies work um they ultimately do affect your life regardless of who you are like it doesn't you know whether it's for good or bad <laughs> like it it will have an effect um and so you know it really is just i i would invite everyone to literally just like it's I, like just wikipedia it like i love wikipedia because it genuinely brings you so much information and and you don't necessarily have to go very far and so you know it's 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 one thing to like get involved in a campaign but then it's another to understand like what the campaign is about and so if i were to give any sort of like advice it would probably be you know find a campaign that you like but then also like do the reading behind it because there's no you know it it's not that like you're not going to be any use but like these especially like campaigns that have to do with kind of going against the arms trade and stuff we we are literally like shot down at any any time that we say anything like you have one figure off on your stat and that's enough for your whole argument to come crashing down because they're used to having to defend their position obviously so it's a question of like and this is why like not everyone is comfortable with just going out and like saying stuff so it's a question of finding like you know your your space which i highly recommend come through to education we definitely got the space for you um but also it's a question of like realizing like okay what are my capacities what can i do right now and to just kind of keep that as a mindset with everything that you do in your life you know um not just necess- like you know everybody's been flying out to dubai I'm not really trying to go to Dubai because I don't really support that way of, you know, like I don't really support like the governments there and the systems there. Um I'm not saying boycott Dubai. Yeah, like where are you holidaying? How are you spending your money? And like that's that's yeah. the small ways that you have some kind of power. And I think what you you made a point there that you just said it's not like you'll be like not useful if you don't um kind of do the deep stuff around it. And I would argue it may not be that you're not it may not be that, but I certainly think you're going to be less effective if you don't make the, yeah. yeah, if you don't make the commitment to, all right, I've entered this space. I'm like learning about this struggle. I need to do the education around it. As simple as that. Whether, even when you have lived experience, actually, there's still far more that you're, you, you're going to need to build around if you're going to yeah. kind of commit to any kind of struggle long-term. Yeah. So I would even say like, cause I've, I've obviously with BLM and stuff, I, I got asked a few times, you know, what's a good ally? What's, what does good allyship look like? allyship oh gosh i don't speak english yeah um <laughs> um and basically you know it is just i i would argue that it basically is just that like you're aware of people's struggles and people's campaigns but you're not there saying that like we need to do this because like they are di- like it's a question of like knowing your place and the allyship that i look for allyship that I look for is the one that like, you know, if let's say your name is like Roger and you're some white guy and like you're hanging out with like all of your friends and then you have someone that says something like, "Oh, man, that was really annoying all these marches and stuff." Like your allyship lies in the fact that you're going to turn around and tell this person like, "No. This is why it was important." You know, it's again, it's not a you don't have to be out here making Facebook posts or like Instagram stories saying like, go check out these black owned businesses or like go and read these books like allyship just means that you will defend the cause and that you will, you know, actually stick up for those who don't necessarily have a voice. Yeah, I'm I'm also saying and I'm encouraging people to even push themselves beyond this notion of allyship, which feels quite like passive now, and think about themselves mm. as active co-conspirators. Just thinking about um <laughs> by Leela Watson, which you might have come across before. So if you have come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. And I think for yeah. me, that is such an important difference. That feels active to me. That feels like mm. our lives are in in intrinsically 
connected and intricately mm. bound and so you're not just being a savior to me you're not just empathizing with me and like feeling a bit mm. sympathetic and sorry for me you're kind of like actually our lives are bound together and so we have to get to work together and I think that's when we move away from what feels often like this passive lip service of allyship towards something far more active and radical which feels like yeah. you know, active co-conspiracy um anyway <laughs> But just moving towards thinking about you, you started, I think, you know, it's a useful segue. You talked a little bit about actually direct action, getting on the streets and like the kind of things that people do. And, you know, we do, we, prior to the pandemic, we did a lot of that at Campaign Against Arms Trade. And I know that yeah. a lot of activists, you know, they see that as very intrinsic to their their way of kind of, of, of being activists. I think it's really important that this time has taught us that there, as you say, there's lots of different ways that you can do your activism, right? And, you know, some people actually got have mad love for writing to their MPs. Some people, it's like, they can't think of doing yeah. any, anything worse. Um, and I think all, <laughs> all of it is needed. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of creative direct action or creative action in some way, shape or form. Um, the fact that, for example, um, I, I know that at DED you do a really good job of actually using social media as a form of activism um, and you break down rather complicated issues such as the global arms trade to make it far more accessible for all. Um, and so thinking about the fact that we are very much bound to a digital space for the foreseeable future and actually whatever happens with our with the pandemic and, and what we do in real life, we should always have a digital element to our work, I think, for lots of mm. reasons. So, you know, do you have any thoughts on just kind of the ways that we can continue to be effective um, as we campaign kind of online and, and find a way to actually still um, be creative with our actions and maybe what form, because one of the things I'm working out right now is what does direct action look like online anyway? So are you mm. at dead thinking about these things, about kind of pushing your digital activism, thinking about creativity and maybe redefining what direct action even looks like? Yeah, I think um, definitely the creative push. Uh, that was as soon as lockdown kind of really started. And like Ginsella and her brilliant mind, like she is one of the most creative people that I know. So yeah, as soon as like, it was like, yeah, you're gonna have to stay in your house for two months. She was like, bet. <laughs> and like, it, it, yeah, so we have this community um, that we call like the content collective, which like anyone can join. Um, and essentially, so let's say, for instance, Sienna, that you join and you're obviously a writer. And so you would want to, like, put forward a piece of, you know, something that you've written that you feel compelled to share. You would be paired up with, like, a graphic designer and the two of you would kind of, like, make this post come to life. And so a lot of our social media now, actually, it's these contributions done by the content collective, which is, yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's it's very exciting. Um, and it's growing. So that's also very exciting. Um, you know, and I think it is just literally one thing I think that I've learned with online is that and just Zoom and COVID and all that is literally that like some people's communities, like social life is that space. And thus now being in a situation where like we can't really be outside and mingle they're taken out of their social life and like that space and I think we have a lot of we're very like we have a lot of uh of potential of like creating just like these massive like support groups and support bubbles for each other as we're trying to not only kind of like continue to campaign for our social issues but also face things going on within us like you know I I think one of the ways in which creative direct action is the most powerful is when it's emotional. Um, and I am an insanely emotional being. We appreciate so you for it. I'm glad you appreciate it. <laughs> Cause like, I sometimes sit back like, oh gosh, what? Um, no, but yeah, I think, you know, having an emotional element to your activism, whether it's in the streets or online, it adds just that layer to, of, of, uh, oh, yeah, okay, justified. Like, people will want to... You, do you know what I mean? Like, people will... We all have emotional reactions to emotions and emotional reactions. So if you have someone that is making a video literally saying, like, like I did it <laughs> during BLM because I I literally could not sleep one night because all I kept watching was, like, live videos on Instagram of people at protests getting shot at, getting, like, um, tear gas sent their way, being, like, huddled and, and then, like, grouped into spaces where they couldn't get out. Horrible. So I literally got on my phone at 7 a.m. and I was like, hi, I'm not okay. And that I didn't necessarily say, like, 
Okay, so the steps are da 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 da. I didn't say that, but I just said like this is really effed up. Like I am not okay, and I'm not anywhere near the situation, you know. And I think even from that, like I had a few friends that it kind of sparked them to also kind really look into it and be like, they're throwing tear gas. Like that's crazy, you know. And it 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 really. So yeah, for me, like this this new wave of activism that we're facing, like with these social restrictions. It's one that is not afraid to show its emotions. It's one that is not afraid to just be like, this is insane. Because there's no, there's no way that this is like a normal life. And there's no returning to a normal life after this either. Because there are way too many open wounds in which salt is still being like perpetually drizzled into. There's no way that we can go back to normal after that. So I think from now on, it really is like, sh I'm not saying like show your pain because not everyone can be vulnerable and it's, it hurts to be vulnerable, but I, I have kind of made the pledge that like, I'm going to be as honest and open as real as possible to kind of show like, look, this, this does affect people, even those that aren't there. So think if I'm here in my nice apartment in total safety and I'm freaking out about this, Like, that should go to tell you the extent to which, like, this is not a normal situation. Absolutely. And it's not normalizing. The only, only thing that should be normal about any of this is normalizing the fact that people should have a visceral reaction to this stuff and people should yeah. speak up. And actually, it should, you know, uh, moving beyond anyway, like, oh, it's cool to care, especially when you were younger, too. I remember always being somebody who cared so deeply about the world, even when I was small and when I was at school. And it felt like very uncool, basically, or like, you know, seen as like, oh, it's a trend or whatever. And I think when you grow up and you realize, you know, actually, you're, you're very committed long term to this work and, and caring deeply about the world, because at the bottom line is all people who struggle against something who are activists campaigners community organizers care deeply about the world and i think we mm. need to make sure that we're normalizing that at all times that it's not abnormal to care deeply about the world it's not hysterical it's not irrational and it's not unreasonable it's actually deeply important to our humanity to care deeply about the world so yeah yeah i i appreciate that that very much mm. um and yeah i really just love this idea of the dead content collective we you know just the idea that you're <laughs> This is another way to engage people, isn't it? And, and you know, yeah, yeah, asking yeah. you about that off off podcast, definitely. <laughs> um, so we're actually already coming towards the end of our conversation. I can't believe it. But we've still got a few more things to talk about. Tell us a little bit about Got Melanin. What's it all about? Why does it exist? So Got Melanin is the blackity black, black, black podcast. Um, and <laughs> and essentially we started it. So myself and Mari Faines, who is also my like co-chair of communications and social media at WCAPS UK, um, we initially just needed to do an episode to just like introduce the chapter but literally uh george floyd's murder was blasted on social media the week that we were going to do it and we were like right well clearly we actually have something else to talk about now um that we need to talk about and it really just started as just kind of like what is blm why is it important and we went into like police brutality um broken slash perfectly working systems Um, <laughs> um, you know, just kind of like, why is it that we've reached a point now where you have people in the streets that are annoyed, rightfully so. Um, and it kind of grew from that because I, again, I lived a very, a fairly like white life my whole life. Um, it was my dad's family that I knew the most, like it's not on my parents' fault at all. Like they've definitely exposed me to both of my heritages in, in equal amounts, but life gets in the way and war got in the way in Congo. So I couldn't go and visit and stuff. So my life was pretty white. And then BLM happened. And at that point already, the last few years anyway, I've had like my black consciousness awakening and everything like that, like since I was like 19. And um, I think with BLM, that was the first time that I really fully had like an emotional, like gut reaction um, just from seeing everything, what was happening and then what was the rhetoric that was around it and what, what people had to say for or against the movement, which I was like, how can you be against people not dying at the hands of police brutality? Like that blows my mind, but obviously it's deeper than that. And that's why people are against it because it goes to break the systems that they so heavily profit from. Um, And so, you know, we, Mari and I kind of looked at each other and we're like, you know what, this is a safe space for 
black women and men to come and kind of have this conversation and see where we're at and how we're doing. Um, you know, so we've had obviously you on twice and every time that we start the podcast, Mari always asks like, how is everyone doing today? How are you doing? Because it's, as you said at the beginning of your podcast as well, of this episode that like, we need to kind of take the temperature and see how everyone's doing in order to know like how to go forward. Um, and we've had male guests on already, which was a huge conversation because it happened like shortly after Meg, Meg the Stallion was shot by Tory Lanez. And so we kind of had this whole conversation of like, how do we even within our community help each other um, without bringing each other down? Um, you know, so it's been eye opening for sure. I've had lots of cried a bunch on there. Like, <laughs> it's like. Yeah. And you came on um when we had just gotten back the verdict of like for Brianna Taylor and you know they ended up charging the officer with like damage to property of the wall <laughs> that was riddled with bullet holes next to her bed. So, you know, I think it's it's been it's been this honestly I think it's like quite saved my mental health like in the last few months because it's been great to have a space to be able to come on there and to try and make sense just of the vent. world and vent. yeah make, make sense of it vent and then also hear other perspectives like every guest that we've had on so far has been just uh, like it's more than eye-opening you know what I mean it's inspiring if anything amazing yeah and you know and I remember that episode the Brianna Taylor episode and obviously it was very emotional for all of us mm. because again we come to this work not just from an abstract understanding it's very much rooted in real world observation, experience. Um, and so of course things are gonna affect you deeply in, in quite a visceral way. Um, so again, as we kind of march towards the end of uh, our conversation, Mel, I guess I wanna just ask you for, you know, some advice that you might have for anybody who actually feels rather overwhelmed about engaging in struggles against such humongous ills of the world, such as the arms trade and such as police brutality. And what can people do and how can they add their voices and take action um, all the same? You have your own way of whether it's like literally sharing posts on Instagram on your story of like this situation is happening here. Like that's a step forward. That's a, a that's part that's campaigning. That's being an activist. It might not be your actual like job, but like it doesn't matter because that means you're still doing something. And so I think it's it's the idea of. It's, it's not the idea of doing something rather than nothing, right? Because we don't want actions to be misconstrued or to be, like, not well understood or to actually, unfortunately, sometimes having more of a negative effect than it does a positive effect. But, excuse me, it's a question of literally doing your research, knowing what you're comfortable with and who you're comfortable with, and then just going from there, setting your own pace, you know? That's, that's, that's the only way that you can go forward like this or else yeah. yeah you cannot you cannot pour from an empty cup it's really important that you know people doing campaigning work in in all forms basically always understand that and obviously our our spaces of work are notorious for burnout culture um yeah even, even now so thank you very, very much for that um and so finally mel just let us know what's coming up next for you and your projects and where can people find you to keep following your work Ooh, well um so the dedication hat um, we've got a video series that is in the making, um, which is very exciting. It's based off of a book that was written by our mentor, Andrew Feinstein, um, Andrew and others like it's, yeah, but it's called the seven myths that sustain the global arms trade. Eye opening book, honestly, like, yeah, it's on my book no list to get after I saw you it's advertising so, it. It's so good. Andrew honestly, and co, you know, yeah. foundational, right? To this work. It's et al um no but uh, honestly sick um and uh so we've got the video series and then we've got obviously our content collective that is still growing and going so definitely get involved if that's something that's that interests you um i'm still doing research <laughs> on creating this like divestment model for universities to just make sure that they like avoid any sort of links with the arms trade as possible but yeah I will definitely update you on that one how that goes um and then yeah I think just in general like I'm picking up the podcast again next year with um 
de- dedication, so it's dead go deep. Um, yes, I've, got, and... I've been on that as well. I like that. See, you're also yeah. podcasting queen. We have to know that. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so that dead go deep. Um, and yeah, we basically we're on all socials, like you know at d e d underscore u c a t i o n, like dead education. Um, so that's all really exciting. I, I would just kind of like, we're like, yeah, on all platforms. We've got the website coming through as well very soon. Um, you do so IGTV lives are, as well. Um, so if people want to, yes. particularly Jin kind of hosting those, is it most Thursday nights? Every Thursday night at seven, she has a different guest on and it's, it's brilliant. And, and then with WCAPS UK, we actually just became a CIC uh, recently. So we're a community interest company. So definitely get involved with us. Um, and, you know, we're kind of, because we, like, have now set our legal entity, <laughs> it's now we can do events and everything like that. So I will obviously keep you updated on that as well. Um, but, yeah, no, we're just very excited to be able to, like, fully function now. Um, and, yeah, you know, Got Melanin is still going. Um, yeah, 100%. There's another season coming up Oh, for us. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, we're finishing the first season in the few weeks but yeah we'll be back with season two and and we're just very excited in general um actually the next episode is well the next episode's gonna be real good um so i would it's definitely recommend but yeah so you can find wcaps online as well um wcaps.org is like the mother organization and then it'll t- you can find links to the uk chapter um and we're on socials as well wcaps underscore uk um and Got Melanin is just Got Melanin underscore the podcast. Um, yeah. So, but thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. And yeah. yeah tune in to the episode on the US election. That was um, definitely fantastic. So, um, and you can also oh. catch Got Melanin, you know, on on YouTube as well. So you can actually see everyone's yeah. faces as they chit chat and give us some much needed thought provoking content um Mel it's been a wonderful conversation and I have really really enjoyed just yeah chin wagging with you and really thinking deeply about the world and you know having some laughs along the way like we do so we just <laughs> thank you for your work and we thank you for your passion and your dedication so and I'm, I hope you. that you get to have some time off though because winter is coming babe so <laughs> find, winter find is coming. some more rest um yeah you know and I, I'm also saying that to myself as well because again we cannot I was gonna say ourselves. I see you sending out emails at 3 a.m. Can you stop exposing me? Because why do you see if you two are not online at 3 a.m.? Let's talk about it off the podcast. (laughs) Tag exposure. (laughs) And that, everybody, brings us to the end of yet another thought-provoking, lively, um, and powerful conversation. Tune in next time um, as we catch up with more inspirational comrades. And don't forget, you can listen to episodes of People Not War everywhere you get your podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, and Acast. And of course, you can read the zine of the same name on the CAT website. Simply visit cat.org.uk. Stay in touch by following us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you're enjoying our content, why not consider becoming a supporter? Again, more information about all of that on our website. Until next time.